Nobody's born incredible. People who do incredible things simply took the right steps. This is our journey. This is the hunt for incredible. Hey everyone, on our show we have a very special guest. She is currently integrating psychedelic therapies into the traditional healthcare ecosystem. This is incredibly impactful work because, I mean, the studies show, and we'll dive into this in a minute, that there's much more benefit with much higher probability with some of these um, treatments than what traditional pharma is trying to push and what the ecosystem currently delivers. This is something that's very important to me personally, and I'm super excited to have her. We have Jessica Tracy. Jessica, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Awesome. So would you mind just to give some people context? Tell a little bit about your journey and how you got into the space. Sure, absolutely. So uh, I got into the space primarily because of my own mental health struggles. So for, I would say, the majority of my adult and teenage life, I was struggling with anxiety and, you know, without the appropriate coping mechanisms, that anxiety had morphed into a variety of different other, how we would call conditions. So, uh, you know, when not managed um, one time after some a, a traumatic experience with a relationship that had, uh, in my early 20s, it had turned into uh, panic disorder where I was having a lot of panic attacks. It had... Um, turned into uh, various forms of OCD or ADD kind of across the board if I wasn't managing it very well. And I also struggled with insomnia because as you know, as anxiety kind of runs through your mind, going to bed is probably one of the worst, worst flare ups of anxiety. So, you know, it was something that uh, I don't think really many people knew because I was always kind of high functioning. I was uh, always uh, successful in my career. And I think I used actually my career and work as a distraction, uh, just always trying to kind of keep myself busy, work more, do more, uh, you know, go out to networking events, go out with friends and family. This whole kind of distraction piece was a big part of my uh, what I call unhealthy coping mechanism, even though, you know, it helped in some extents. Uh, but Ultimately, I, I used the conventional approaches to uh, really manage my anxiety, which was uh, doctor's orders, here's your SSRIs, which I did on and off for about 15 years. And then uh, here's your sleeping pills for when you can't sleep and, you know, tried lots of different kinds because they all make you feel really terrible in the morning. And uh, also here's your, your benzos, your Xanax for when you have a panic attack. So, you know, that mixed with some wine was ultimately my, my mental health concoction. And that for me, it was just something that I, I always struggled with because I didn't want to use, I didn't want to be dependent or reliant on something to feel good. And I also just knew there had to be a different way. You know, there had to be a different way than me just taking something which ultimately didn't necessarily, I wouldn't say it made me feel great, right? It made me not feel the bad feelings or the anxiety, the worry, the fear, the doom, which just kind of creeps up for no apparent reason sometimes with generalized anxiety disorder. But it also didn't make me feel as, uh, I would say, as I truly was, right? So uh, I, I did that, like I said, on and off for a while, uh, really whenever I felt as though my anxiety wasn't managed very well. And uh, it got to a point where, you know, the, the Xanax was really what was helping me sleep the best. So that was what I used. And I was you know, safe about it. I would try to do a few days on, a few days off, maybe do Benadryl in the meantime. 
but it was to the point where that was really my dependency around and what I needed a good night's sleep because it worked the best because it was the only thing that could really shut the thoughts down and I can close my eyes and just go to bed. In using that approach over an extended period of time, it got to a point where I would say what was at one point kind of helping me to uh, survive. And I shouldn't just say survive because I was doing well for the most part, right? But it was something that I, you know, kind of behind the scenes, it was something that I, I always really struggled with. And, you know, to some extent in, you know, kind of challenging situations, but it got to a point where words weren't coming to me as well, or I, my memory just was, was getting, you know, pretty bad. So those medicines and those kind of side effects that they talk about in the small print and re in the really fast words at the end of the commercial were kind of really coming to light. So I, uh, I knew I didn't want to do it and I had tried to get off many times. Um, and, you know, tried to wean off or just cut cold Turkey, which is not always this, which is not the best approach. But anytime I did, I, again, I just hadn't developed these healthy coping mechanisms to really be able to uh, sustain being off, right? Or not get back into the same place. You know, I don't think my my story is too dissimilar from what a lot of people deal with. You know, it's a, a combination of micro macro traumas, just also just general stresses of, of everyday life and kind of, you know, balancing everything and, and kind of trying to overperform in, in career and whatnot. So... Fortunately, uh, let's say I got to this point where I just knew there was another way and I was seeking the other way. And uh, I was fortunate enough to come across uh, psychedelic assisted therapies. So I was able to experience um, psilocybin internationally where uh, it was legal. And also here in the States, I found ketamine assisted therapy. And I used both of them. And I would say it just completely changed my perspective on on healing. And I finally started to really see, wow, there's a lot more. There's a lot beneath the surface that I need to work on that I've really suppressed, especially with these medicines, right? Not addressing, not working through, but just suppressing symptoms and pushing stuff down that I have to work through. And these medicines, and we can you know talk more about the experiences, but these medicines really helped me to see a lot of the walls that I had built, a lot of the protections that I had built, a lot of all the, the stuff that I had stuffed down that needed light, that needed to be seen, that needed to be addressed. And it empowered me, really. It empowered me to say, okay, you know, I don't have to rely on something that's just going to numb me and distract me. I can actually work with these tools to now get to know myself better, nurture myself, work through some of these challenges that have happened over the course of my life to find what I call true healing. And uh, I, I did just that. And, you know, I think also through using these alternative approaches, you know, I don't know before if I could have just jumped right into doing, using approaches like uh, yoga or meditation, which are highly, highly effective for me now. I don't think I could have just jumped right into them, you know, if I got off of something else, uh, maybe so others could, but I wasn't there yet. So working with these medicines also helped, were the catalyst to engage me in other types of healthy coping mechanisms that have really sustained my outcomes. And now it's been about two and a half, uh, three years since I've been on any medication at all. And I'm, I'm sleeping great. You know, I still have my, my bouts every now and then, right. When I'm dealing with something stressful or, uh, uh, you know, kind of 
situational anxiety, which is totally normal, right? That's that's a normal part. We have anxiety and, and our ego for a reason. It's there to protect us. But it's not uh, it's not anywhere where it was. And it's more of just that kind of healthy form of anxiety that we all deal with. So when I had experiences myself, I, I recognized one, the remarkable opportunities that these therapies have to heal individuals. I also recognized too, I, I spent a lot of time in, in health insurance and I recognized how many people, you know, the vast majority really struggle with these conditions. And then I also saw the challenges around it. I had no idea before I, I was uh, originally connected to these medicines, I had no idea what the possibilities were and how they could heal and how effective that they were and how safe they were and how uh, much research was done and how, how, uh, how much research was out there showing really remarkable outcomes and then even beyond that, that there was a whole kind of ecosystem of companies and organizations that were doing work in this space to make it more accessible. So when I came to realize all of this, I, I just really started to shift my energy and uh, wanted to take my background of insurance and healthcare and apply it to creating access, to creating awareness, to building education, and really to just help others access these therapies. And in my mind, the best way to reach the most people is to integrate into our traditional healthcare ecosystem, right? Because that's where most people trust getting care and are comfortable getting care, right? We've got this whole kind of system that's built in America that we use. So in my mind, and, and that's kind of like the nucleus that I sit, sat in with my previous work, so my mind just really started to go and, and focus on how can I take that background and really leverage it to create better access, safe access, affordable access to these therapies. That's awesome. So effectively, you're, you're leveraging the momentum that you already had in life with your background in healthcare to say, okay, how can I swing this? And I think that's that's really where we need to sit because it will be much more difficult to work around the system and it'll be much more effective in my opinion to work with the system and say okay how can we structure this in a way to where people can access these treatments within the infrastructure that's already there um, and then also there's a huge component of building trust with people unfortunately psychedelics yes. still has a big stigma i think that the stigma is beginning to go away but i mean when the nixon administration started the war on drugs in the 70s mm -hmm the rebranding on psychedelics was so strong pushing it away about how if you do any mm -hmm. amount of psychedelics you'll think you can fly and jump off bridges and that's dangerous and all sorts of stuff that's simply not true now of course these things need to be respected 100 percent. i feel like that should always be one of the first things that's said when talking about psychedelics is you definitely need to be mindful and and, and make sure that you're taking the right precautions to make sure that it's done safely Again, though, that can be applied to anything. If you're driving a car, you should be mindful of the precautions. If you're drinking alcohol, you should be mindful of the precautions and everything else. So there's definitely no like silver bullet, just indulge and, and it'll fix all your problems. That's certainly not the case or what we're implying at all. But there is a lot of rebranding work that needs to be done in the space. And I think a major pillar of that is getting it integrated into a system that a lot of people already trust as the system that 
verifies like what is good and what is not. I agree. So, I agree. Yeah, so t tell me a bit of, more about like the work that you're doing and how you are actually integrating some of these things. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. So, so when I think about uh, the healthcare ecosystem, I, I think about kind of a few key aspects that need to be addressed when I think about creating that affordability and, and that uh, patient access to these therapies. I think about the traditional um, health systems and academic medical centers that uh, people are going to for care, as well as you know outpatient clinics uh, and providers that these patients are seeing. I think about employers and unions that have um, you know the vast majority of the population. They are ultimately paying for uh, for healthcare, you know, as well as Medicare and Medicaid, or ultimately uh, designing the benefit programs and paying for the bulk of the healthcare that is um, delivered. Then I think about, of course, you know, the VA uh, as well that, that covers vets and TRICARE. And then I think about uh, insurance, right, which sits on the other side of this, which is kind of this, uh, this function of, uh, of creating the network and um, uh, processing and adjudicating the claims and ultimately all of the inner workings of the insurance system. So a lot of my background uh, really kind of sat in around um, within that core ecosystem. So I spent uh, about 10 years in insurance and employee benefits consulting where I did underwriting and data analytics and ultimately reviewed uh, claims data to put together cost containment and health and productivity analyses and structured benefit plan designs, ultimately for the buyer, the union and so forth. So uh, the, you know, the insurance and the employer piece is definitely a big component of this because when these therapies do become um, approved and available within a therapeutic application, then somebody is going to have to pay for them. So there's a lot of one education that needs to be done for the uh, employer and the union who is ultimately going to uh, have the opportunity, especially self-funded uh, employers and unions, will have the opportunity to decide if they are going to cover these therapies or not, right? And, you know, that's going to be a big decision, especially with, as you mentioned, all of the stigma that surrounds these, these therapies and these medicines. Uh, payers also are going to have to decide too if they're going to uh, cover these therapies. And the AMA, they did just release a CPT3 code, um, or sorry, it's going to be released January, uh, has, or is going to release a CPT3 code for psychedelic psychotherapies. Uh, that said, they're still going to be considered uh, explorational or investigational. And oftentimes that means it's not necessarily going to get covered, right? We have a CPT code, but it, it's not um, deemed medically necessary at that point, right? So there's also a lot of analyses that have to go on within uh, the payer system to understand the uh, long-term cost effectiveness of using these therapies rather than alternative approaches. And some of that work is being done and the outcomes are positive, which is great. And which is as we expect, right? If you can uh, significantly reduce, and in many instances, what we're seeing in the studies is actually eliminate these, these uh, symptoms, then that is going to have a positive financial outcome for everyone involved. And then we have 
those that are the, the health systems and the academic medical centers. And, and they ultimately have to decide too, do I incorporate these therapies into my treatment protocols? And there is still stigma around these, these approaches, right? So there's also a lot of education that needs to be done to uh, look at the safety profile and the clinical efficacy um, that is being shown across an immense amount of clinical studies at this point to uh, really understand the value and uh, the, I would say, almost necessity of incorporating these treatments into their uh, toolkit, if you will. You know, and I, I think very much about the treatment resistant population and, uh, you know, this, it's a large portion of the population that deals with mental health challenges. You've got about 50% of those with PTSD. They don't respond to conventional therapies. Same with generalized anxiety disorder. It's about 50%. For major depressive disorder, it's 30% that don't respond to conventional therapies, meaning they've tried um, SSRIs, they've tried a few conventional therapies, and they, they are not responding to them effectively. So a lot of my work is is thinking about, okay, you know, we've got this kind of, uh, the, this ecosystem that we sit within, and how do we now take steps to integrate these approaches into um, the various components of that ecosystem? So I do some work with a, a company called Anthea, and Anthea is uh, a really interesting model where they have recognized that, okay, well, uh, insurance is not covering ketamine-assisted therapy. Yet there's clinics that are providing ketamine-assisted therapy uh, all over the country. And uh, Anthea decided to build a network of these providers and uh, bring them to, in to employers as a, a, an employee benefits solution or a mental health strategy for them. So I work with them to bring this solution to employers, to unions, to brokers and consultants to say, hey, you know, a large portion of your population is treatment resistance. So the mental health strategy that you have in place has a pretty big gap. Here's an opportunity for you to partner with this, uh, with this organization and Thea to bring access to ketamine-assisted psychotherapies to your population. So that's some of the work in looking at these kind of innovative approaches to create that access until uh, traditional insurance catches up. Right. And then my other work is working with uh, with health systems and academic medical centers. And, you know, as I alluded to before, really just helping them to kind of evaluate the feasibility of incorporating these therapies into their their protocols. So, you know, what does it look like? What does it cost? Uh, what's the why? Uh, how do the stakeholders feel about this? And then designing and implementing once we, we all agree on the value, that the value is there and that it makes sense and, you know, that we've kind of got a big portion of the population that maybe uh, they don't have certain uh, treatments for to put together uh, ultimately an implementation plan to integrate these therapies into uh, both their service lines when legal or the clinical research setting when, you know, as they are still going through that FDA approval process. Now, a lot of the concerns that people have are around safety, both like mm -hmm. the external safety, like, okay, if you are, um, let's say, under the influence of psychedelics, then can you do yourself or society harm? And then there's the other aspect, which is how is it actually like affecting your brain? Can you talk a bit about the safety of psychedelics versus some of the other more popular benzos, like you mentioned, like Xanax mm -hmm. and the others? Mm hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So, 
you know, the safety one is, is definitely an interesting one because you you alluded to the war on drugs and a lot of the propaganda around uh, the the safety of these therapies. And, you know, in doing a lot of this research um, specifically for, for uh, health systems, I really dove into the safety profile, right? Because, you know, we look at the different studies and, uh, you know, we can look at MAPS uh, study that, that did a, a clinical study around uh, MDMA therapy, assisted therapy for the treatment of PTSD. And, you know, I alluded to the outcomes that 71.2% no longer met PTSD criteria after they went through the study. They also uh, did not have any, um, any issues of harm or uh, any uh, challenges from a safety perspective that came out of the study. So from that, we're seeing that it has a very high clinical efficacy and it's also very, very safe. And I also found a study that actually uh, went back, they did a review of all of the studies out there, as well as some of the anecdotal information that is out there. So think about narratives or uh, news, um, magazine articles, uh, maybe more opinions. And they separated some of the uh, the anecdotal information from uh, the research. And when they looked at the research, they recognized and identified that within uh, the majority of these studies, these medicines have a very, very, very strong safety profile. So they are not seeing any um, kind of what the news is alluding to of people jumping out of a, a window, right? Because you you uh, took a, took a, a dose of, of medicine. You know, I think there's the the context of we have to put individuals in a very safe setting and provide them with a lot of care and support and make sure they're ready for these medicines, right? Preparation, integration, appropriate coping skills as they're working through traumas that are going to come up, uh, making sure they're doing it with people they feel safe with making sure that they have the appropriate set and setting, making sure that they have individuals that are trained to facilitate and that have the appropriate um, appropriate support to be able to hold space for them. So those components are, are all absolutely critical to ensure that someone has a, a safe uh, and, and positive outcome from these therapies, right? If you're just taking it and you're going off to a rave, your experience it might be might not be as pleasant, right? Or it may be totally different than sitting down and having a therapeutic session with a clinician that is trained to carry you through these journeys. So yeah, that's what I'd I'd say around the the safety component is that um, you know I would say the majority of the data out there, uh, the actual clinical research, is showing that these medicines are very safe. And they are not seeing any, um, I would say, kind of dramatically harmful outcomes coming out of these these therapies. You know, I'll also say that you know they do have to have um, this integration afterwards is super important because you're going to have a lot of traumas uh, and a lot of things that you need to work through that are going to be coming up over time. So it's not about just in that session. You're going to ha continue to have downloads, kind of reminders of things in the future that you are going to uh, need to continue to work through. So having that uh, integration ongoing is important. And then also having, building those additional kind of coping mechanisms and just ways to really manage your mental health from a, um, uh, from a different perspective. So looking at 
other approaches like journaling to kind of get those thoughts out or meditation to quiet the mind or yoga to move some of those traumas and some of those stuck feelings through your body. So all of that is incredibly important. Yeah. I often hear this idea that benzos like Xanax are safer because, well, you can like they're prescribed to you. And so they're for mm. sure safer because like the doctor told me I should have it. And therefore mm. anything that's illegal is not as safe, which I think is, is wildly inaccurate because I mean, I feel like people are just now beginning to see the repercussions of being hooked on those chemicals. It's like that, that expression, there's no such thing as a free lunch. Like anything mm. that you're doing to chemically shift your brain on an ongoing and regular basis is going to have dramatic negative repercussions most of the time. I mean, there are times when people need to be chemically balanced, but mm -hmm. I mean, our brains are so complex. Our bodies are so complex that there's no such thing as just making one chemical adjustment. It's a domino effect. You make that one chemical adjustment and it shifts this whole slew of other things. And if you stay in that shifted state and your body tries to compensate for it and rebalance itself out, then you can find yourself in a precarious situation where removing those compounds and getting off Xanax can often cause a lot more damage and create more problems than you were trying to solve in the first place. Yeah, it's a challenging situation uh, and you have to be very careful weaning off of those medicines. Uh, I experienced that myself. I mean, when I was getting off of SSRIs, I was getting brain zaps and it, it is the oddest feeling you're literally having zaps going off in your brain and you know it's like what the hell is that <laughs> what's going Wait, on so in there it, right but yeah, it is that more i'm not i'm not familiar mm -hmm. with with brain zaps yeah so it's it's uh it's it's not uncommon actually when you're getting off of a, an ssri and it's just this really weird feeling that just kind of like it's almost like a, a little electrical shock that that feels like in a way that happens in your brain. It's very odd, and you're kind of thinking, "Shoot, should I go back on these on those medicines? Because this is weird. This shouldn't be happening." But right. you kind of just have to ride it out, and eventually they do subside. But you can actually look this up, and and it is uh, it is a side effect of coming off and. You know, and, that, and the uh, getting off the Xanax too, I mean, that one's that one's really challenging and you have to be super careful in weaning off. Um, you know, I met someone who said that they're uh, somebody that they knew had had struggles with seizures getting off of it. Um, I know for me, I would just lay there all night long sometimes because I, I couldn't sleep because I had to rewire myself into uh knowing how to sleep or relearning how to sleep with without anything and you know when i i i, I just use the word rewire i mean you asked about how psychedelics helps with um with the brain it is literally rewiring the brain right it's restoring healthy brain connections if you look at uh the brain and uh with a depressed patient versus a patient that it, versus a healthy brain, you can literally see the differences um, within the brain. And, uh, and as you uh, work with these medicines, they can see the new brain connections forming and the healthy brain connections forming. So it is literally rewiring your brain uh, back to a healthier state. And it's also rewiring your your responses, right? So you know, I, for me, it was like very much, you know, you, you just get so habitual, right? 
through micro traumas and macro traumas and programs, you just get so habitual in how you respond to things and how you think about things. And what's really good about these medicines is it does, it has that, uh, does, uh, that neuroplastic effect where it's rewiring the brain, where it's bringing you ultimately back to that brain state when you were younger, where your brain is still super malleable, where it's learning what's safe, what's not safe, what's appropriate, what's not appropriate, um, what you like, what you don't like. Right. And then ultimately that kind of over time, you start to hardwire and it's harder to now change, physically change the brain. But these medicines are remarkable in their capability to actually help us to get back to that more flexible state where we can unlearn and reprogram in healthier ways. Yeah, I read a really interesting study that had a visual that impacted me greatly, which was it showed the neuroplasticity of a child's brain and then of an adult's brain and the way i'll have to i'll have to dig it up because i read it quite a, a while back but i mean just that image is so vibrant to me still where it basically showed the neural connectivity of like different pathways and how children's brains they think very laterally very creatively because they're observing and learning about the world around them right like they they genuinely arrive in this world as blank slates. And so they're constantly engaging with the world, learning and exploring and shaping. And as the adult brain gets older, this study, study showed, is that like you're saying, you become solidified in your ways, kind of like the expression, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. But then right. on these psychedelic compounds, and not just on them, but they actually create that neuroplasticity and increase that lateral thinking, such that even when you're not on the psychedelic compound, you still have that lateral thinking because it explores neural pathways that aren't normally explored. And your, mm -hmm. your brain, the way that it works is the more frequently you exercise a neural pathway and a way of thinking and a way of operating, the more ingrained that neural pathway becomes and the more difficult it is to veer outside of that neural pathway. But these compounds, they create connections that aren't normally connected. And so essentially you're exercising the brain. I always think of it as yoga for the brain where you're stretching and like exercising these neural pathways that aren't normally exercised and so you are able to teach old dogs new tricks because you're stretching and doing that yoga for the mind and exercising this lateral thinking that's not normally exercised mm -hmm. i i agree with you a hundred percent and and you know i i I see just that with myself. I mean, I, I went from, I would say, you know, engaging with these medicines to heal a lot of the uh, micro macro traumas and, and unlearn, reprogram, you know, a lot of deep, deep work. But then as some of that starts to work through and starts to release, you have so much space, so much space for yeah. so much more, right? You're not being just pulled down by such heaviness and just it helps the mind to think differently to have that space and when you have that space you can create in ways that you weren't able to before right because you're not so focused on protecting yourself you're now focused on uh knowing you're, you're kind of in this space where you know you're safe and having that safety and security and feeling really good and really healthy now gives you this new way to use your brain in these really exciting ways to to build to create to test out new talents and 
you know, I, I, I mentioned some of those other coping skills that, that I alluded to before with the meditation, the yoga, I mean, they all, uh, generate neuroplasticity as well. Right. So it's not just psychedelics. This is a, I, I very much look at psychedelics as like this catalyst that can kind of catapult you into this whole nother world of, of engaging in all of these really ancient tools that people used to use all the time to evolve and grow and, and, and create. And, uh, you know, now I find myself doing yoga and meditation every day. I, I never thought I had any music capabilities whatsoever. And now I'm playing the harp. And that was actually something that came up in one of my journeys. I, I literally started, there was a, a song on that was, um, you know, there was some harp music in it and I knew how to play it. And I, and, you know, I come from an Irish uh, background and uh, it's very much kind of there you know, that, that harp is obviously very near and dear to the Irish culture. And, and I could feel as though I knew exactly how to play it. And not too long after I bought the harp and here I am, you know, playing, playing the harp really well. And my harp teacher's like, wow, you're really good. I was like, yeah, I think, I think it's natural. This is, uh, this is very much in my DNA. And it's just really incredible the way it's like when you heal your brain and when you release some of the old programs that, that keep you so stuck and keep you small, you can really expand and evolve in just these really beautiful ways. Yeah, hundred percent. I have a working theory. I haven't read this anywhere. They're probably doing studies on it right now. Um, but in the various studies I, I've read and just connecting the dots, I pretty strongly believe that psychedelics are major levers in cognitive longevity. So the same way like brain exercises for older people and memory games and they say, okay, this actually encourages cognitive longevity because you're exercising your mind, right? Your mind operates akin to a muscle where the more you exercise it, the stronger it is. And what psychedelics do is increasing that neuroplasticity and increasing the neural connections that aren't normally exercised. I am a, I, I, I truly believe that through like the the regular work and also considering that there's no neurotoxicity from things like psilocybin that in controlled amounts and especially like subperceptual doses like microdosing which has become like a, a a major point of discussion over the last few years is i i truly believe also that it does exercise the mind in ways that will encourage that cognitive longevity and i'm a big fan of like the work of James Fadiman and how he talks about microdosing and the benefits of microdosing there. Is there anything there that you'd like to touch on? Yeah, no, there's, there's actually a lot of studies on, on microdosing. I mean, there, they've, uh, there's been studies that have looked at, uh, microdosing like very, very small amounts where you're not really feeling the medicine much at all. I mean, you might feel like a slight shift in presence, but very, very small amounts. And, uh, and after just, uh, you know, one or two sessions, patients are coming out less depressed just from microdosing. And I'm talking specifically with psilocybin. Um, but yeah, I mean, the studies are, are even showing just microdosing alone can be very beneficial. So there's a lot of drug companies that are out, that are building a lot of, um, uh, that are focusing on creating these medications with psilocybin and others where you're not getting any of the hallucinogenic effects, but you know, you, it may be a bigger dose, but we could even look at microdosing, um, you know, within the therapeutic setting for patients as uh, the data is showing that it is highly effective as well. 
you, you, I'm sure you've seen in the articles that uh, that many of the Silicon Valley execs all yeah. microdose. So there's there's yeah. definitely a lot out there uh, in terms of research and just kind of um, you know information that people have put out there that it is highly effective uh, in just more of, I would say not only the optimization piece, but also just in uh, managing symptoms of uh, depression or anxiety as well. So yeah, there's this, this interesting kind of combination of these medicines are highly effective in dealing with trauma and also for brain optimization and performance optimization and problem solving and you know, reaching greater levels of consciousness and also being more empathetic and, uh, you know, maybe even being a better leader, right? Because you can understand people uh, a bit more, right? And um, you're just engaging with people in different ways. So yeah, I mean, there's a lot of a lot of data out there that that supports that. Yeah, I also read some interesting studies. And this was years ago. So the studies are probably much more elaborate than now than they were back then. Um, but James Fadiman, he did a study with microdosing on with 1500 people. So it's a, a fairly large uh, sample size. And there were regular reports of feeling just in general, more balanced and focused and feeling less impulsive, which is really big. So there were people who like they felt less of a need to have a glass of wine at the end of the day, or whatever people's coping mechanisms, like you were mentioning before, where your brain when it gets in this like out of sync and out of rhythm, it tries to subsidize that imbalance with something like a glass of wine, even if it's just one, but just like, oh, at the end of the day, I like to have a glass of wine, maybe talk to my friends, whatever it is. And people were finding that unintentionally, it's not like they were trying to quit the glass of wine at the end of the day. It's just once they got to the end of the day, they felt like they didn't need it. And they had actually preferred to not have the glass of wine because they didn't want to be thrown off balance with the glass of wine. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's, yeah, uh, it's, it's so interesting. It really bums me out. There are a handful of things that like really bum me out when I think about them. And one of them is the damage that I think the war on drugs did to the progress that psychedelics could have facilitated. So like in the sixties and seventies, mm -hmm. there was a ton of research being done, a ton of innovation in the space, a massive amount of information was gathered on not just how, how these substances can impact humans in a beneficial way, but even just the understanding of how our brain works, like psychology made massive amounts of progress by what they were mm -hmm. able to understand with the support of these compounds. And with the Nixon administration, just like snuffing out any progress and like putting a halt on it and then forcing a lot of this research to go underground or just dissolve in general, I think created a massive setback in society that we're still working through to try mm -hmm. to make these compounds more accepted. Uh, yeah, I agree. And, you know, it, it was a lot of fear mongering. And uh, I think that fear has carried into where we're at now. You know, I know that there's many people that would never engage with these therapies, you know, if it's not prescribed by a doctor. So that's why a lot of my work is very much focused on integrating into mainstream healthcare, right? And there's, you know, some of my, uh, my experiences have been with, um, with a local uh, provider of ketamine assisted therapy. And um, it was my HARP experience. And, uh, you know, I've had really great experiences doing those therapies, but 
again, because it's through uh, a kind of outpatient clinic and not maybe uh, through a doctor within a health system uh, that they're familiar with, there's still kind of fear and hesitation to engage with, with that type of therapy. And, you know, obviously you can go um, international, like I've done a lot of my work in Jamaica where psilocybin is legal. And, uh, you know, I've been fortunate enough to, to have those experiences, but it's expensive, right? And you have to take off time from work and you have to fly out there and pay for uh, a retreat. And, and, you know, that's not accessible for everybody, right? So um, having the ability to integrate these therapies into places where patients or individuals will feel safe receiving them as well as of course you know be safe receiving them have the appropriate care around them and and also ensuring that we're not just plugging it into the health system but now it becomes some medical thing right we ha still have to incorporate the spirituality and um you know a lot of the other kind of set and setting aspects and the kind of really kind of traditional approaches that need to surround these medicines for the true healing capabilities of them right it's not just about giving somebody a pill it's about helping them to understand that they can heal themselves and these medicines are kind of catalysts to help them get in there and do that work but then they're with themselves again right so providing these surrounding approaches uh, that can help the individual learn how to remember how to heal, right? Uh, if we get a cut, our, our, our skin heals eventually, right? We take care of it, it gets healed. We don't talk about often our ability to heal uh, emotionally and spiritually, but that's there as well. The challenge is we're so programmed, right? And we are so... Um, you know, for me, it was very easy to just distract. You talk about that glass of wine, you know, to just go and it's like, oh God, that, you know, I'm feeling a little stressed. Let me have a glass of wine. You have a glass of wine, you feel nice and calm again, right? So it's so easy to go back to that. Um, but starting to learn the power that you actually have, you know, I haven't drank for a year, a year and a half now. And uh, a lot of that really has been through the work that I've done. And, and, you know, I thought I would miss it, but I don't, you know, and I, you know, I thought maybe I'd not, want to be uh you know out and about but the, again i'm just i am but i'm there as me fully as me you know and and receiving and giving fully as me and uh you know i just think that um there's just so much possibility with these medicines 100 percent. so what do you see the next 10 years looking like in this space Mm -hmm. I do think there's going to be mainstream healthcare application of these therapies. Um, you know, the, you probably saw that, uh, maps PBC, they submitted, um, the new drug application for MDMA assisted therapy, and that's super exciting. Right. Uh, so if that does get approved by the FDA, then, um, we expect that to go through by the end of next year uh if it does and um i'm going to say when it does instead actually uh and if and uh in that instance then we can expect to potentially start treating patients uh, maybe a small amount of patients but treating patients by the end of 2024 early 2025. so that is incredibly incredibly exciting um you know we're starting to see movement on a state-by-state -state basis around either decriminalization or uh, or providing um, Oregon has the wellness 
access model, right? Where you can, uh, it's not necessarily specifically around a specific condition, but it's more wellness-based. Uh, we've got um, Ibogaine going through the process of, of pr providing access, uh, or sorry, Kentucky going through the process of providing access uh, for Ibogaine for opioid addiction. So we're seeing movement. Um, we are uh, seeing progression. There's uh, a lot across um, the country. There are a lot of bills that are um, that are in you know the Senate or the House where they're either trying to decrim or legalize um, from uh, for medical use. So I am seeing, uh, I would say, kind of tailwinds that these therapies are going to be available within mainstream healthcare and to be able to be prescribed by a doctor. I also hope that, um, you know, we can start to see um, centers in the U.S. where you can get access across the country, where you can get access to psilocybin-assisted psychotherapy and, you know, engage in group retreats here versus having to go to um, Jamaica or, you know, another country where it's legal. Um, group therapy is is highly, highly effective. Uh, I think we're, we're going to start to see a shift in uh, this group component uh, after you go through an experience with these medicines. One, it's going to be more cost effective. So we think about insurance and, and the, the need for uh, reimbursement. It has to be cost effective, right, for a payer to want to incorporate it. So that group therapy aspect is going to make it more affordable for really everyone involved and not only more affordable, but there are a lot of studies that support and show um, the effectiveness of going through that therapeutic and that integration process in a community setting. You know, I think a lot of what's happened over time is this kind of disconnection, right? Uh, this disconnection from community. We, if you think, go back in the day, we all used to be tribes kind of working together and having community together, sitting around fires. And now it's very much on individualism, right? So I, I do believe, and I think COVID really exasperated this where, where I know for me very specifically, I felt very much like I was missing community and connection. And, and this group component, I think really helps to uh, improve that. So, you know, I think, mainstream healthcare application where uh, where providers are able to um, prescribe and uh, we have this kind of psychedelic assisted psychotherapy model. I do believe also we're going to uh, also incorporate other types of uh, psychological support that surround these therapies. So, uh, you know, as we look at the cost effectiveness and uh, build out various training protocols, we're going to also be incorporating, uh, you know, those that may not be a psychiatrist or a trained therapist, but maybe they're specifically trained in psychedelic assisted um, facilitation, right? And they're trained to be able to hold space for an individual. So, you know, all of, all of that to come, but I, I do foresee those models coming uh, in the future. I, I really hope to see insurance coverage uh, you know, in talking to employers for for my uh, my client and Thea, there is a lot of I would say receptiveness to the possibility of these therapies in treating their the mental health of their population. I mean, when you look at mental health within a 
uh, an employee population or a union population, you look at it from the individual perspective and, you know, the fact that your employee is struggling, there's, there's a lot of, um, a lot of challenges and, and, you know, uh, needs to address that. And then you take that a step further and look at it from the cost perspective. It's not just the cost of the mental health, but that if you have someone who also has, let's say, uh, diabetes or cancer and they have a mental health condition, it's way more expensive for the employer to cover it, right? So there's going to be a real shift, I would say a real um, paradigm shift in employers starting to really look at this and say, you know, the data is there to show the clinical efficacy. The data is there to show that these are safe. We need to help our employee population. We know they're struggling. And we know that in turn, it's going to benefit everybody because we can reduce our um, employee benefits cost or healthcare cost in doing so, which not only helps the employer, but it helps the employee as well. So I, I do see a shift um, in the future. I mean, you can see it on uh, on the, the news. They're doing, um, there's a ton of documentaries out there. They're doing uh, lots of news sessions on uh, these therapies and talking about it. So um, you know, we're, we're seeing it. I think, uh, I think it's just hard to ignore at this point. Right. That makes sense. What would you recommend for someone who is experiencing things that they feel like these treatments would help given the current regulatory environment? Mm-hmm. Like, let's say they're listening right now and they say, man, that sounds really great. I'd love to go <laughs> give it a shot, but their employer's not bought on. Um, insurance, of course, isn't down. What would you recommend for them? Uh, it's a good question. Um, you know, and I, I can never recommend without, you know, talking to an individual and obviously I'm not a doctor, right. Or a clinician. So I can't give like any type of, uh, clinical recommendation, but what I will say is, is to just do the research, right. Go explore what is out there. Cause there are a ton, there's a ton of evidence and a ton of studies out there that can help you understand, um, you know, what could potentially support you with your condition or uh, the challenge that you're struggling with. And there's, you know, a variety of options. There's uh, ketamine assisted therapies that are legal in all 50 states across the US. And um, right now they are primarily self-pay unless uh, an employer is covering them. but primarily right now it's self-pay. So looking into um, how they deliver treatments, what their protocols are, are they doing the prep, the, the um, how are they dosing? Are they providing the appropriate psychotherapy or integration after the fact that's really important? Um, is it right for you? So not all medicines are going to be appropriate for each individual, right? There's exclusionary criteria out there to say, well, if I, you have this condition, then we don't recommend you have this medicine. Uh, so ensuring that the medicine is appropriate specifically for you, uh, based on your own unique background. And then, you know, there are opportunities to look into different, uh, retreats internationally. Uh, you know, as I mentioned, there's, uh, retreats, psilocybin retreats in Jamaica, in, um, there's ayahuasca sessions or retreats in Costa Rica. There's also some, uh, you know, legal and available retreats in, um, in states where it's legal today. So in Oregon. Uh, so I would just say you have to do your research. Um, you have to make sure that whomever you engage with is, um, is providing the appropriate, uh, space and support, uh, around you because these are, you know, there is a lot that comes up with these therapies and, um, you want to make sure that, um, you know, you have the appropriate, 
support uh, to integrate them. So yeah, I'd, I'd probably maybe leave it at that. <laughs> there, there's a lot to look into um, for sure. But I always say just like looking at the data and uh, doing the research and um, and there are legal approaches right now, right? And hopefully more legal approaches to come, uh, but there are options. And, and talk to your doctor too, right? I mean, if, if you're engaging with, um, with say, psilocybin in, in a, treat, a retreat in a different country, but you're still on uh, medication, it's going to impact your experience. So you have to talk to a clinician who's experienced in that as well to understand um, how to work with the individual or if you need to get off that medication. And some of them work differently. You know, you may be able to stay on certain medications if you go through ketamine, uh, but with psilocybin, you may need to take a different approach. So you have to talk to um, to the clinician or the psychiatrist who, with whomever you're engaging with um, or, you know, the medicine woman or shaman if it's in a different country to, to really understand the best approach for you and, and just read up on it. I love that. Reading up on it with an open mind, trying to forget all mm -hmm. of the, the, the bad propaganda against it, but just like really objectively looking through the data and seeing if it makes sense and just educating yourself. I think everybody should educate themselves on these topics, mm -hmm. whether they plan to engage with it or not, just to understand the direction that help and support is actually going for people. Because this is, I mean, anxiety and depression and, and all these other mental challenges have such a massive impact on society and everything else. And so staying abreast to how those things are developing is, I mean, part of understanding better, like the direction that society is going as a whole, which I think is really important. Mm -hmm. Jessica, this has been an absolute pleasure. Uh, where can people find you? You can find me on LinkedIn. So my name again is Jessica Tracy. Uh, my company is The Sage Collective. So my website is the sage, S-A-G-E, collective.co, no M on the end, thesagecollective.co. And uh, yeah, that's probably the best way to reach me because my contact information is, is there as well. So I hope this was helpful. It was fun to chat with you about this. I, I love talking about this space and uh, you know, sharing my own personal story. I hope it's helpful for, for people listening. And if you have any questions, yeah, just don't hesitate to reach out. Awesome, good stuff. Jessica, thank you so much. Thank you.